0: A listener production. G'day, I'm Chris Russell and welcome to AgriMinders. Without a doubt, improved connectivity in our regions would provide significant opportunities for Australian agriculture. Yet the remoteness that's inherent in huge farms, some bigger than some countries, and the sparsity of paying customers makes connectivity both expensive and unprofitable to commercial suppliers. This has meant the bush has historically lagged behind their urban cousins in both access to the internet and availability of data capacity. The National Broadband Network was conceived in 2007 and promised much to remote food and fibre production in this regard. However, despite the expectations, the 2018 Regional Telecommunications Review, which was commissioned by the Federal Government, found that rural Australia, and therefore agriculture, has often been frustrated by poor coverage. The productivity of farmers and graziers has been inhibited by poor access poor reliability, and transparency of planning by NBN providers. We've heard much in this series about the potential impact of technology, including cryptocurrency and water monitoring devices, just to name a few, but without the connectivity to support it, this technology can't make a difference to our food and fibre production. To explore the challenges in rural connectivity and the plans for improving this in the future, our agrimander in this special episode is federal minister Paul Fletcher. Prior to entering parliament in 2009, Paul Fletcher previously held senior roles in the telecommunications private sector and has had a number of parliamentary responsibilities in communications since. Paul Fletcher inherited the 2018 communications report when he took over the federal ministry for communications and entered the cabinet in 2019. Today he joins us as a senior member of Federal Cabinet and without doubt the number one agrominder in Australia responsible for setting and implementing policy in this critical area for our future food and fiber production. So welcome to Agriminders Minister.
1: Great to be with you, Chris.
0: Minister, can I ask you, agriculture as we keep on hearing is potentially a $100 billion business and the NFF is committed to doing that by 2030. Currently, we're sitting at about $66 billion. That's a big growth curve, but to 2030. In your view, what role does broadband connectivity have in achieving that growth?
1: Well, I think connectivity is a key part of the productivity and competitiveness of the agriculture sector, as it is for so many other sectors of our economy. Now, we know that Australian agriculture is very efficient by world standards It has very low levels of subsidy compared to many of the other countries we compete against. We've got big export markets and we're well positioned. But what we also know is that technology is transforming agriculture like it is every other sector. And whether it's soil moisture monitors, whether it's being able to track the physical movement of cattle or other livestock... There's a lot of technological tools which can all help efficiency and productivity, but they depend upon that connectivity. I was in Toowoomba probably about 18 months ago and speaking to an agricultural consultant there who made the point that soon Australia will have more livestock connected to the internet than people with these uh, RFID tags uh, attached to an animal's ear or elsewhere. And of course, that's a very, very useful tool. But the key question, and you touched on it, in your introductory remarks, we're a country of 7.7 million square kilometres. Many of our agricultural enterprises are in pretty remote locations. How do you get that connectivity back into the network from the animal with the tag or from the rainwater gauge that is networked or the remote controlled gate opening and closing device? all of that needs that connectivity to work. And so great progress has been made, but there's no doubt that more is needed.
0: What What are some of the more exciting innovations that you think are on the drawing board that are just waiting for that level of connectivity before they become a reality?
1: Well, I think I'd say, first of all, that there's no doubt that lots of farmers today are using this technology very extensively. And while it's natural to focus on the areas that... Um, have uh, connectivity that's not where we'd wish it to be. We should start with the fact that the NBN can cover all 7.7 million square kilometres uh, with the Skymaster satellite in particular, the key technology for supporting uh, regional and remote areas, as well as fixed wireless. And indeed, about three quarters of all premises and what are called regional areas are actually on fixed line, uh, obviously in towns and, uh, and villages and so on. Now, with the SkyMaster satellite, we've had a lot of focus on how do we optimise that to best meet the needs of customers, including, obviously, people in the ag sector. Uh, so, for example, um, a bit over a year ago, we introduced uh, a business-grade product, amongst other things, that has uh, two-way symmetrical speeds as low as 10 kilobits per second. Now, 10 kilobits per second is very, very low. Why would you want that? Well, if you've got a property with rainwater gauges spread right across it or other monitoring equipment, they're not sending huge amounts of data. It doesn't necessarily need to be in real time to be a useful decision support tool for the manager of that farm, but what you do need to do is capture it comprehensively. And so the fact that the satellite has coverage over the entire landmass, uh, it makes it a good tool for that and that low bandwidth, but ubiquitously connected uh, product is a good way of supporting those kinds of applications. Now, another example I came across recently was an Adelaide-based company called Miriota. They're doing uh, low earth orbiting satellites. So they've got a fleet of about four at the moment. They'll be building them up. They're quite small. Their own satellites. Their own satellites, yeah. um, Launched by an Australian company. And Again, they're very much targeting the agricultural market. So at the moment, they take any given point on Earth, their satellite, one of their satellites passes over about every 10, 12, 14 hours, um, they explained to me. But as they get more satellites in the sky, that gap will reduce. And what are they
0: going to do with that? Well, a-
1: again, a good example is uh, rainwater gauges. So they showed me a rainwater gauge made by another Australian company, um, Goanna AG. And then what Miriota does is they attach a bit of electronics to that rainwater gauge. It sits on on one of those star-shaped fence posts and then it sends up the data, quite small amounts of data. When you think about it, to record how much water is sitting in a rainwater gauge, it's not a massive amount of data. But what you want is that data coming from multiple places um, and then being accessible. And being reliable. Being reliable. That goes up to the satellite and then with some clever electronics um, when the when the data gets sent back to the ground station, then it then they apply their clever electronics, and there's a web-based tool that the farmer uses, the farm manager uses, to then gather, see that data presented in a convenient and useful form. Now, one of the other key points about all of this is something the the really only twig to me. I had the chance to go and visit uh, Charles Sturt University near Wagga, and they've got um, some sophisticated facilities there, including, um, where they've got plants that are growing and there's an underground, um, it's a tunnel essentially with glass walled, um, access to where the plants are growing. So they study the particular behaviors of those plants and the, the ag scientists there explained to me what they did. Um, the key point that they made though, that was a powerful point is it's, it's great to get the data about um, how much moisture there is in the soil or um, uh, how high up a particular, how, how high the canola is out of the ground. But what you need then is the decision support tool that takes that data and says, okay, based upon the last 50 years of experience, we know that if the soil moisture is at this level, add more water. If it's not, don't. So you need the software and the smarts. You also need the connectivity. Often the connectivity doesn't need to be that rich in terms of getting useful data out of the monitoring equipment, where it does need to be high speed absolutely is then in the connectivity to the homestead. Because if you're sitting in your office in the homestead making decisions um, that's going to be a web-based product, almost invariably, and you need good connectivity. And then of course, what farmers also uh, say to me and my colleagues is, well, look, actually we don't get to spend much time in the homestead. We're on a tractor. Um, we want to be using our tablets while we're out, um, doing other work around the farm and helping us make those decisions. And that comes to the point you touched on earlier. You've got connectivity to the home or the homestead, which is one part of it, but then how do you then get the connectivity out into other parts of the farm?
0: I'd like to come back to satellites a little mm. bit later. But before we get there, I'd like to talk about um, a young lady that we interviewed uh, back in the early part of AgriMiders called Bridie Olson. I say young in the sense that she's from a generation where digital contracting and digital negotiation and business is is a, just a norm. Um, and she has she's the CEO of a company called Giora which is i think if not the only certainly the major digital agriculture company in Australia and she's somewhat frustrated i think by the fact that the whole idea of digital contracts which are all linked to a blockchain depends on both data travelling in the blockchain and the ability for that data to trigger events, you know. And it all sounds very complicated, but the cutting out of all those middlemen and the people guaranteeing contracts and and all that sort of thing makes a big difference to how fast the farmer gets his money for his barley as he grows it um, and so on. So her question, I suppose, would be how quickly is our rural system going to be reliable enough and good enough for farmers to confidently going into digital contracts which are thinking their payment's are going to be held up because satellite's not working today or the optical fiber's broken, they don't know where or, or whatever.
1: So as I understand the way her business works, the idea is that if, as a farmer, you're delivering um, you know, a load of wheat or barley into a silo, that the delivery of that can be evidenced and through the, through the digital, through the blockchain technology. And amongst other things, that might allow um, uh, the release of finance, the release of, of loan finance, for example, from a financier because they're satisfied. Or
0: insurance payouts yeah, indeed, or all sorts indeed. of things. Yeah. So,
1: so the underlying business benefit that it produces is very significant. But of course, if it depends upon a physical sensor sitting in a silo, then the question is, does that silo have connectivity? And our strategy, I guess, in terms of connectivity across the 7.7 million square kilometres is really to have several layers. So the NBN satellites, the two SkyMaster satellites, provide uh, that first layer of being able to say, we can give coverage wherever anybody is with a speed of up to 25 megabits per second peak speed, and so um, that is a pretty good l- basic level of, of speed or foundation level of speed and certainly more than adequate for any of these kinds of applications that you've been talking about, which are not they're not multimedia, they're not video, they're quite small pieces of data. Now, clearly there is an important role for, for video in all kinds of agricultural applications, um, but there's plenty of very useful things you can do with a, a baseload level of data. Then the next thing is that when it comes to um, higher speeds on fixed line networks, you've got uh, a significant proportion of people in regional and remote Australia being served by the fixed wireless network, uh, which can achieve higher peak speeds than the uh, satellite network. And one of the things that we're continuing to do is to look for incremental opportunities to upgrade where there's a business case to do so, from satellite to fixed wireless or indeed fixed wireless to fixed. Um, We've just announced the results of the first round of the uh, Rural Connectivity Program, which is about a $90 million uh, program, and there's a number of projects there which see particular locations upgrading from Um, satellite to fixed wireless or to fibre, indeed fibre to the premises. Um, And so um, what we're seeking to do with that funding program is say, particularly to agricultural businesses, look, if you think there's a case for you to put some money in, we're there ready potentially to match that. And there have been quite a number of businesses uh, that have done that. Um, Costa, the uh, tomato uh, growers, um, they've received funding under this Program and they put their own money in as well. And that will upgrade from satellite to uh, fibre to the premises at their locations, which are in uh, New England. Um, then, of course, we've got the question of mobile coverage because, again, with Australia's enormous landmass, that 7.7 million square kilometres, just over 30% of the landmass physically has mobile coverage. Now, that's well over 99% by pop- population but in terms of physical distribution, only just over 30%. Now, we've done a lot of work to increase that distribution through our mobile black spots program. And um, that's several hundred million dollars we've now committed to that. Over a thousand base stations have now been funded, about 800 already delivered. And that is getting coverage to areas that were not there before, including um, typically with 4G coverage. So that's quite high bandwidth.
0: And are you confident that, I mean, I think some I read that they're expecting the whole um, blockchain-based supply chain idea to grow by about 80% over the next five years. Are we going to be ready for that, do you think?
1: Um, We do need to recognise in a country like Australia, which is so large and for much of our physical area has very low population density, that raises some challenges in delivering and maintaining the physical network in a way that doesn't exist in, say, the small, densely populated countries of Europe. Again, I come back to that point. That's why it's important to have layers of connectivity and why the satellite is so important as effectively a platform that can cover the entire nation. And even in areas which by population are the great majority, where the primary service is delivered over fixed line or over terrestrial wireless, it's still a very useful thing to have the satellite there. Um, And I guess the other thing I'd say is we're going to continue to see innovation in the delivery of network. NBN, of course, a government-owned entity, and its job is to be there and be the baseline. But um, we've got uh, services like uh, Starlink, which is the Elon Musk, uh, one of his many uh, business ventures, a a fleet of low-Earth orbiting satellites. They've just launched a beta of... Uh, a consumer broadband service in Australia over those satellites. I think it's $139 a month. Now, full disclosure, they they don't have staff on the ground in Australia, but you can, I'm told, order it online, or well, that's what they've told me in the briefing I've had from them. Um, and then uh, you're seeing other companies like the one I mentioned, Mariota, the Australian-based company, coming to the market. We've also just had an auction of radio frequency spectrum for 5G, which is the next technology in mobile Telstra, Optus and TBG Vodafone all to different extents already have 5G in the market but we've just uh, auctioned the so-called 26 gigahertz or millimetre wave spectrum. My point is you'll see continued innovation in the physical connectivity uh, to um, which is that vital platform over which all of these extremely useful applications operate.
0: So uh, you wrote a book in 2009 um, which you called The Wired Brown Land. I think given the satellite dependence, perhaps you would today call it the unwired brown land because it's really more about satellites, is it not, for remote Australia than it is about wire or is wire and optical fibre always going to be critically important?
1: Well, optical fibre will always be critically important because whatever travels over the network ultimately has to get back to the core of the network and even though in regional and remote areas... Um, wireless is more than sufficient because of low population density. As you then bring it back to the core of the network, it needs to run over optical fiber. I think about a telecommunications network as being a bit like a tree, with you know the 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 leaves, the twigs, the branches, and the trunk. Um, when you're in the leaves and the twigs, or in the telco jargon, the access network, then certainly our wireless worked extremely well and our fixed wireless network, the NBN fixed wireless network, uh, is doing a good job of delivering, um, good speeds to people in parts of Australia. What do you call
0: good speeds?
1: Oh, uh, well, um, again, 25 megabit per second peak speed and many times of the day getting considerably better than that. Um, so people are routinely using fixed wireless to watch Netflix, for example. Um, so my my point, I guess, is that optical fibre is always important as you start to aggregate the traffic, and particularly if we think about a mobile network, that um, many base stations have optical fibre to them, and in the cities all of them do, because you'll have thousands of um, devices connecting to the base station, all of that data aggregated, and then running back into the centre of the network. And, of course, Mobile devices now are broadband devices, so they're carrying large amounts of data. One of the issues in regional and remote Australia is how do we get um, optical fibre as deep into the mobile network as possible? Many base stations are connected by microwave, which is a specialised form of, of wireless. Um, and, and quite old
0: technology, isn't
1: it? Uh, well, it's, it is good technology and it can do very high speeds, but it can't match the speeds of optical fibre. Its advantage is that it's not as expensive or as time-consuming to install. On um, Friday, I was uh, in King Island in Tasmania. I talked earlier about a a rural connectivity program um, and one of the projects that that is supporting is a $9.8 million project to greatly upgrade the... Uh, mobile network on King Island, so they'll they'll get uh, several new towers. Some existing towers will be upgraded. It'll all be uniformly four G, and then the backhaul capacity from the island to Victoria will be increased sixfold. Um, as I say, it's a nine point eight million dollar project. Um, the point I'm making is that uh, that uses a combination of fibre optic and microwave, even the the new project, and that'll uh, meet the needs of. Um, agricultural enterprises on the island, or tourism, uh, school students, many others, but it's an example of the way that the range of networks that need to be used to serve agriculture as well as other industries is extensive and certainly people want mobile coverage and they want mobile broadband but they also want fixed broadband and there are certainly applications that need um, uh high bandwidth and where fiber optic or a fixed connection fiber than copper or fiber than HFC um, is is the right solution for that market.
0: So the the 2018 um, review, um, which I know you didn't commission it was commissioned by your predecessor, but um, it talks about a digital inclusion index. What is that?
1: Well, the essential idea is looking at individual households and saying, what access do they have to fixed line, to mobile, what speeds, also what devices, and it's, I guess, a bit of a policy tool for weighing up um, inclusion by particular, in particular groups, metro versus regional and remote, um, older people versus younger people, um Uh, high socioeconomic status, households versus low SES and so on. I should say we're doing another one of these this year. My colleague, uh, Mark Coulton. Another review? Yes, we are. My colleague, Mark Coulton, who is the Minister for Regional Communications, so he and I work together closely, Uh, he he and I are working together on that uh, review. And, of course, we also work closely with David Littleproud, the Minister for Agriculture, because what we're seeking to do is, um, to the maximum extent possible, deliver connectivity in a way which then supports those broader aspirations of the agriculture sector itself and, of course, the government's aspirations for agriculture. And you talked about some of these earlier, the capacity to um, use blockchain and other technologies to uh, make transactions smoother and more efficient along the value chain so that insurance payments or finance can be released at an earlier stage uh, to a, a farmer after the harvest. Of course, one of the other exciting areas is provenance. How can you demonstrate through the value chain the provenance of meat or of wine or cheese? Or carbon footprint, either. Well, indeed. Um, and, and given, you know, brand Australia and also, of course, many branded agricultural products, um, to be able to demonstrate that provenance and feed that into the brand and what the consumer sees is is attractive for business reasons. But again... Um, connectivity tools are part of that. Now, I guess one of the other points I'd make is... Well, just before we do that, yeah.
0: can I come back to this digital inclusion mm. index? Because in the 2018 review, regional Australia didn't really perform well and a lot of regional Australia actually got less than 50 out of 100, which I'm assuming is like a fail. I mean, most people would see it as that. So when you do this new review mm. um, this year, are you expecting that that's going to be dramatically improved or is this an ongoing problem?
1: Look, it is an ongoing—I wouldn't say problem, but an ongoing priority, certainly for our government. For example, the mobile blackspots program I talked about—we introduced when we came in in 2013. Under the previous government, there'd been no public money at all going to mobile coverage in regional and remote Australia. But it's—it's it's very clear that's a priority. Now we've—we've we've, this year um, we're announcing what's called round five A of the mobile black Spots program. There's funding for a further round, round six, and with the uh, Rural Connectivity Program I mentioned as well, that's another area where we're putting specific funding into particular needs and we're trying to have, a, I guess, a a process where we ask people to put forward proposals to identify opportunities for connectivity to better support uh, agriculture and other um, needs in regional and remote Australia. So is there
0: a timeline on this? I mean, can we say to our regional and rural people, look, uh, in, within five years, we're going to have your digital inclusion index comparable with the urban index?
1: Uh, or is, you know, what what sort of timeline? What, what we certainly want to do is continue um, moving that regional figure closer to the metropolitan one. Um, but we do need to recognise that that's a significant task. One of the ways, one of the tools we're using, obviously, is NBN, but another is, How can we encourage private sector businesses to be providing connectivity and finding a profitable business model to do that? So there's quite a group now of so-called wireless ISPs. And I talked about NBN using fixed wireless in regional and remote Australia, but these wireless ISPs are private businesses. I'm thinking of businesses like Beam Internet in South Australia, who I had the chance to meet with um, probably about a month ago. Um, there's a business called, uh, CRISP in regional Western Australia. And so their business model is that they focus on the tower and the wireless transmission. They're offering, uh, typically speeds of 50 megabits per second or higher. Um, and they can often roll out more quickly and cheaply than a government owned organization. They do it by, for example, having towers that are uh, more modular, um, uh, perhaps less, uh, um, they, they're, they're, they're quicker to be installed, perhaps the concrete footings don't go down as far, but it gets the service out there quickly. And again, with our Rural Connectivity Program, there's a number of those businesses that have received funding. Um, and in some instances, we're seeing um, these businesses respond effectively to demand in the agricultural sector perhaps more quickly or in different ways than NBN might. So we're certainly keen to encourage that private sector response as well. Um, There is a market opportunity there with more and more farm enterprises identifying that with greater connectivity, they can use tools which help make their business more productive, more profitable, and they're therefore willing to... um, you know, pay appropriately to a provider who can give them a service they need.
0: People in the bush are, are really asking for choice. They want to be able to ring up Optus and say, what are you going to do for me? And so tell Telstra, what are you going to do for me? What's Vodafone? And and to say, have some competition. But that it just doesn't work because of the huge cost and the sparsity of, of users. So how is that choice going to be reinstituted within this whole program?
1: Competition is extremely important. And whether you're in the city or in the bush, as a customer, you're going to have better options if there's vigorous competition between your providers, whether it's telecommunications or electricity or supermarkets or anything else. The the challenge, as you've alluded to, is that the capital cost of building telecommunications networks is very high. And therefore, in regional and remote areas, what tends to happen is if there's one player who's already there, it can be hard for other players to break in. Now, we've done a number of things to try and tackle that. I talked earlier about the Mobile Black Spots program. We've deliberately set, it, set out to make that as competitive as possible. And indeed, both Optus and Vodafone have won funding for significant numbers of towers. Now, some people have said to us, why would you do that? Because the risk is that you get a tower that's an Optus tower and everybody else uh, everybody uh, in that area is on Telstra and this becomes an island of Optus coverage, but... Um,
0: like Williams Creek, I was there the other day. Williams Creek, you've got Optus, fine, you've got Telstra, forget it. Mostly it's the other way around, hmm. I might
1: add. Well, and but the reason we did that was to put competitive pressure on all three of them to bid f- under the program and they did that and we got better value for money for taxpayers. We got more base stations and we also encouraged uh, operators in, in Optus and Vodafone to go into parts of Australia they hadn't been in before... So um, you do need to have a continued focus on that. Certainly, my perspective as minister is I welcome competition. We were critical when we were in opposition of some of the ways that the NBN was designed and we did not like the idea that the NBN would be the government-owned operator that would provide the solution for everything and that government would therefore discourage other companies from competing. Uh, My view is that competition drives innovation and new ways of doing things, as well as better pricing. And that's why I talked earlier about these privately owned wireless internet service providers, because I think they can have an important role, particularly in regional and remote Australia, in identifying customer needs and serving customers in a more agile way than a company like NBN might. We've got players like Field Solutions Group, who are, again, a specialist in providing Um, regional and remote communications, and their business model is, uh, again, they're typically providing uh, wireless ISP services, but they're also looking at, okay, can we use our towers to carry a mobile base station as well? So we've got different kinds of services, and as a government, we're interested in encouraging that kind of innovation because competition is important. And it's and, and there's no doubt that in regional and remote Australia, the extent of competition is less than in Metro. What's important is that our policy settings, as much as possible, encourage competition rather than discourage it.
0: Yeah, I think so. And you're a free enterprise government. But in the Fed Income Department, there are only X number of customers out there. Yeah. And I often think that that telecommunications in the bush is a bit like water storage and water conservation. To my mind, I'm not an economist, Mm. I'm a scientist, but to my mind, provision of water and the provision of connectivity is just something that if you live in Australia, the government's just got to bite the bullet, forget the economists, and you actually sit down and say, we're going to put this infrastructure in, then we're going to say to the private sector, okay, this is all here, away you go and use it. We so often seem to get bound up with people stating the obvious that I can't justify putting that amount of money into a dam because, you know, it won't produce this amount of money. And yet it's once it's in and you've forgotten about what the capital cost is, its productivity implications are massive. I just wonder whether, in fact, um, governments sometimes need to sort of say, listen, this is not a soluble problem
1: without a lot of capital. Well, in defence of economists as a class, uh, what, what they would say is that there are certain things that are public goods that's to say no private organisation will build it because the return cannot be captured by the party that's built it. And public goods are ones that it makes sense for governments to provide. And in the you know classic undergraduate economics lecture, the examples that get given include defence. Defence is a public good, but certainly some of the infrastructure uh, that you've talked about it, it, it spending on that is justified as a public good as well. And what you've described is in many ways what's been the basis of telecommunications policy in Australia for a long time. Under the universal service obligation, Telstra is required to provide a voice service, the so-called standard telephone service, to any customer who orders it for a flat connection fee. It's capped at um, uh, just a few hundred dollars um, wherever you are, even in the most remote parts of Australia. And that is effectively a cross subsidy from profitable metropolitan operations to uh, regional and remote operations. The National Broadband Network, $49 billion of taxpayers' money, has been spent. Uh, One of the rationales for it is to provide that platform of coverage, including through the satellites, um, so that wherever you are in Australia, you can be assured that you can have access to a speed of uh, 25 megabits per second peak speed. And we've got, um, uh, a legislated, um, mechanism there so that companies that compete with NBN in the city in the same business line effectively have to pay a small surcharge per customer per month. And that goes into, um, a, a subsidy scheme, which then helps fund NBN's loss-making regional and remote services. So, um in effect, what you've described has been the policy approach for the reason you've articulated, namely, um, we, we, as a nation, we want to ensure that wherever you live, you have access to telecommunications. And as telecommunications has got more sophisticated, and it's not just voice calls, but it's data and high bandwidth data, then we want people to have access to that. And we are very alive to the fact that, we have highly productive industries agriculture resources and others tourism uh, many many of those enterprises are located in areas that are very expensive to serve and without a public policy intervention the risk is that those areas would not have service and that would not be an acceptable outcome mm-hmm.
0: Can I come back to the satellites, and Mm. in particular to Elon Musk, who is an entrepreneur extraordinaire, no doubt. Mm. Um, The other day I watched his satellite go across the horizon, his new um, Starlink Mm. satellite. What place increasingly, Skymaster was never really set up to do voice calls very well, as I
1: understand it. Yeah, so Skymaster is geostationary, so it's 37,000-odd kilometres up in the sky. What that means is there's a lag um, for the for the signal to get up there and back. So, you know, we, we we're all used 30 or 40 years ago to making international calls where there was that lag because it was going over satellite. And um, you can get used to it quite quickly, but for understandable reasons, for voice telephony, people generally don't like that lag. It's much more noticeable when it's two-way, when it's two hops. Um, it's generally not noticeable if it's one hop. But the advantage of the low-Earth orbiting satellites, of which... Um, the uh, Starlink is one example, is that they're much, much closer to the Earth. They're just a few hundred kilometres up and therefore the signal takes very little time at all to get there and back. And so amongst other things, there is no noticeable lag. Now, they're, they're justified principally for data, not voice, but that's a consequence of...
0: So what's, what do you think is, with Starlink coming on board mm. and knowing him, he will get that right, yeah. is that going to be a major player now, But maybe even replacing Skymaster in the future?
1: Well, what I think we will see is the low-Earth orbiting satellites becoming uh, an additional option, services over those networks, an additional option for Australians. As I say, I had a briefing from the company in the last few days. Um, Their service, I think, is $139 a month. um, And they talked a bit about the number of people they can serve. They were very clear they're still in a, a, a beta stage at the moment. It's not, um, a fully commercially operating service, but they will take an order if you're in the right area. So they're, they're only taking orders in regional and remote areas of Australia. Um, so what, what I think will happen is that there will be market niches where, um, players other than NBN can do a better job of serving the customer. Um, 5G is another good example, both 4G and 5G, there will be plenty of people who will find the high-bandwidth offerings of 5G uh, better suited to their needs than what NBN offers. I should add, by the way, the NBN business case assumes that about a quarter of households never take NBN because of other providers. When it comes to that regional and remote market, the interesting thing about these global fleets of satellites is their economics depends upon the entire uh, world, you know, they're serving the whole world, Um, But that does potentially mean that um, there are options for Australian customers to effectively piggyback on that. And certainly my view as Minister, our view as a government, is we want to encourage competition. To operate one of these uh, satellite fleets, you need regulatory approval in Australia. If you're selling it in Australia from the Australian Communications and Media Authority, particularly what you need is um, the uh, set the signal as it connects to the user terminal, the dish. And then as it, as it connects to the ground station that uses radio frequency spectrum, the Australian communications and media authority is our national regulator of radio frequency spectrum. So Starlink, for example, has been approved by them to use particular frequencies. Um, but certainly our position is we've encouraged, I mean, it's been a decision for the ACMA, but the government certainly encouraged them to consider but that. But
0: they often say that, you know, technologies in this era are either under development or obsolete, you know, and I, I sometimes wonder whether a lot of these companies just keep waiting for the next G, 5G, 6G, who knows, and they never actually invest and say, well, we're going to stick with this G and we're going to really make that work well. Is, is that a fault? And if that is a fault, what is the next exciting thing that's going to happen, you think, in connectivity?
1: Uh, well, if you talk to the um, uh, management and shareholders of Telstra, Optus and TPG Vodafone, for example, they would tell you at some length how many billions of dollars of private capital of taxpayers' money has been invested in uh, building up the existing mobile networks, upgrading them to 4G and now the process of upgrading them to 4G, uh, 5G. You know, there's over 10,000 base stations across the three operators across Australia. That's a lot of capital. And they do continue to invest an enormous amount of money to upgrade those networks. Now, I think 5G will be significant, including very significant for agriculture, because what 5G offers is much higher device density. That means more devices can connect to an individual base station. In a world where we're going to have lots and lots of sensors, that'll be really important. And I think one of the certainties in agriculture is a lot more sensors on-farm, feeding data back to for decision support tools that the farmer will use, um, and, and that may well be in things that we haven't even thought about right now. Um, uh, then um, 5G is higher speed um, than 4G. It's also lower latency, that time taken for the signal to get to the network and back. That's really important for things like robotics, remotely controlled vehicles. So you can imagine a future in which um, tractors, harvesters and so on are remotely controlled, um, but that only works if there's low latency. If you've got high latency, then, you know, the tractor um, uh, sees something in front of it, sends the signal back, here's what I've seen, command comes back, brake. If that takes too long. It's hit the tree already. It's hit the tree already. (laughs) So low latency will be really key for remotely operated vehicles and I think that'll be big in agriculture and again in Australia, you know, as a wealthy nation with a, a productive ag sector and obviously a lot of capital in the sector and more going in, the capacity to use automation and technology um, is clearly very significant but that connectivity will be important. So I think 5G will be important. The other thing about 5G, by the way, is that it is better set up than 4G for enterprise-specific applications. So an individual base station in a mine or a farm. The economics of that will work better in 5G than in 4G. There's so-called network slicing that is available on the network operator. But I think what you'll see is the, the telcos will be more interested in those kinds of applications than they are today. And again, I think that'll create some possibilities for the ag sector. To come back to one of the other things I think we will see over time is I talked a bit about the fact that Still nearly 70% of our landmass does not have mobile coverage and we need to improve that. Um, I do think that um, aerial uh, or satellite base stations will play a role there. Um, uh, Google was working on for a long time something called Project Loon which involved base stations in um, uh, hot air balloons um, floating around in the jet stream. It sounds a bit wacky, but they got quite advanced on it. They did a trial, uh, including in New Zealand, South Island, um, quite some years ago now. They pulled the pin on it about a year ago, which is a bit disappointing, but this idea of, um, base stations in the air, um, is potentially very interesting for a country like Australia. Now we need to wait and see who can make that work commercially, but if somebody can either, um, you know, uh, 80,000 meters up, or several hundred kilometers up, using satellite. But if you could, if you could get connectivity from that to a mobile phone using the one of the existing four G or five G standards, that would be very attractive. Now, it's not, we're not there yet, but um, I do think in coming years somebody will crack that one, and that'll be very important uh, for for the agriculture sector and and other businesses and consumers in regional and remote Australia. If if that happens.
0: Well, Minister, thank you very much for your time and explaining that. Um, It was tremendous to learn so much more about where we're going. I think while a lot of us maybe don't understand as much about it as we should, we all understand the importance of it. And I think the government is clearly trying to move in that direction and uh, we give you more strength to your elbow in getting that done over future years. So thanks again for coming in this morning.
1: Thanks, Chris. Great to chat to you and your listeners.
0: Clearly the balance between a profitable private enterprise to connect Australia and the provision of necessary telecommunications infrastructure has been a difficult path walked by successive governments. Minister Fletcher has navigated that path carefully from both the perspective of a commercial service provider and now as the chief policymaker in this area. The NBN has promised much when it was first introduced in 2007 However, with speeds often less than 1% of urban NBN speeds and low data limits in most of regional Australia, remote farms have been denied much of the technology offered by agricultural machinery manufacturers overseas. This has seen regional agriculture continuously lag behind urban-based businesses in access to the internet, in technology and the sense of oneness with the rest of the world not to mention the lifestyle internet opportunities that are taken for granted in the cities. The promise of improved satellite-based technology, both from private enterprise and the NBN, may be the circuit breaker in bringing rural areas up to speed with the rest of Australia. This could allow the implementation of sophisticated mechanisation and cloud-based technology that would transform the way we produce our food and fibre both economically, and of course, efficiently. Not to mention the feeling of connectivity between all Australians, regardless of their geographic location. As more urban Australians move to our regions and the demands on agricultural production continue to increase, greater connectivity must be a priority for current and future governments. Time will tell if the promises of connectivity will become a reality, either as a taxpayer expense for the public good, or as a business model made attractive for private enterprise. I'm Chris Russell. Join me again on Agriminders. Special thanks to the Agriminds Think Tank Group. Agriminders was presented by me, Chris Russell, producer, Lindsay Green, audio producer, Darcy Thompson, and executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Snack.